And this is really my purpose this morning to draw our attention as we continue in worship to look at the person of Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11. While you are finding your way to Mark chapter 11, it probably would not be an overstatement to say that all of us see tons of advertisements daily. Either you drive or you're looking at your phone or you're looking at the TV screen. We all are bombarded by advertisements. And probably not a secret that some of them practice misleading appearances in order to draw consumers. I know most of the children went to Sunday school, but one of their favorite products is Nutella. (laughs) I see that some of you already had this morning a a slice of bread with Nutella. About 10 years ago, a mother of a four-year-old child was watching Nutella product, not because she truly desired as her child desired, but she noticed that the advertisement was portraying Nutella as nutritious and healthy product. In fact, it was more healthier than any candy bar. And when mother noticed that advertisement, she, with a few other parents, she pursued a lawsuit against the company and Nutella ended up paying about $4 million in lawsuit and settlements. Now, the product itself appeared to be a great breakfast food and healthy alternative to things like gel and syrup. Love it. We come across of many things that have a very misleading appearance. It is true not only in the world of advertisement, but it is also true in the world of religion. We come across of many people who portray to be very religious. In fact, when you ask them a question pertaining to eternity, they almost always would answer you, I'm not a bad person. My appearance in front of your eyes is actually, I'm a very religious person. I'm a very deeply sincere person. Yes, I practice my religion in my own corner. Nobody sees me. But this is the culture we live. As we come to the text before us in Mark 11, we come across the text of a very deeply religious society that had by all evidences deeply religious culture. In fact, Anyone who would observe the Judaism of the first century, they could say, if any people would ever go to heaven, it would be them. But beloved, regardless of what we would say about religion, or others would say, the truth of the matter is what God would say about the religion. I invite you to follow as I read in Mark 11. We'll read from verses 11 through 22. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. On the next day, when they, left for, when they had left Bethany, he, came, he became hungry. Seeing at the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. 
And when he came to eat, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Evangelist Mark is writing this gospel to a persecuted church in Rome. A church that embraced not only the message of Christ, but the person of Christ, and simply for the confession of Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, they would face death. So Mark is writing to them this gospel to encourage them, but also to equip them as they proclaim the message of the gospel. Now, the way we think about the gospel nowadays is gospel is really a personal salvation message. It has to do with me and Jesus. When Mark writes this gospel, he is portraying to the believers in Rome and to us today a person of Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. And then through the pages of the gospel, as he narrates this story, he shows to us that Jesus was favored by God. He was prophesied by prophets. He was authenticated with the authority throughout his life and ministry. Mark began to show us Jesus who had authority over unclean spirits. None of the religious leaders would even recognize that unclean spirit was among their presence. Jesus is not only recognizing, but casting unclean spirit out. Mark continues to tell us that Jesus has the authority over the sickness. He would heal the leopard, the outcast of the society. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Now, a lot of people would favor Jesus. All except religious leaders. They, from day on, as he appeared in the public stage in Galilee, they were seeking how to destroy Jesus. Jesus was not the person they would favor. In fact, they rejected him. They attribute all the work, all his miraculous work that he is doing by the power of Satan. At that point, Jesus turns his ministry from public ministry to private ministry. He devotes his time to his disciples. It is interesting to read in Mark, the disciples and the family of Jesus were very slow to understand who Jesus was. They were very slow to believe and embrace him. Unlike the blind Bartimaeus. Even though he was blind, he saw him as the son of David, as the promised one. Unlike the 
Syrophoenician woman, even though a woman and a Gentile woman, the outcast, she saw in him the one who can cast out the demon out of her daughter. Mark presents to us the gospel and really structures this gospel with two confessions. If you were to read through the gospel, you would come across in chapter 8, the confession of Peter, who finally came to recognition Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one. And Mark concludes the gospel in chapter 15, before resurrection story, with another confession. A confession by a Roman officer who publicly says, truly, this man was the Son of God. So we come across, as we read this portion of the text, with a person who is the Son of God, who has all the authority, not only to create, but also to examine the religion. So Jesus comes on his final week in his ministry. He comes to Jerusalem. And this specific text that we read, it is really on Tuesday of his Passover week. So as we study this text, we're going to meet Jesus who condemns fruitless religion. And I thank you for those who put together this PowerPoint so we can follow along. So in verses 11 through 14, we will see Jesus illustrating the fruitless religion in the fruitless tree. As we pick up in verse 11, we see Jesus who entered Jerusalem. You remember, it was his triumphal entrance. He was the legitimate king who was received by an illegitimate praise. He entered Jerusalem, and as we read here in in verse 11, he came to the temple, and looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. The whole focal point of chapter 11 through chapter 13 will be the temple. In fact, everything will be about the temple. There are two key aspects in the Jewish religion. It's the Sabbath, and it's the temple. The temple would be the heart of their religion. And as we see here, Jesus does not come with sugar-coated words when he enters the temple. He comes to examine the temple. So on the next day, Mark establishes for us here the chronology of this final week, which is Tuesday morning. Jesus left Bethany. Bethany was about two miles east of Jerusalem, just over the Mount of Olives. It was a very small community, a small village, and this is, uh, was the place where Jesus would often be welcomed. He found friends in that community. You remember Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They resided there. So Jesus spends with them Saturday. He spends with them Sunday, Monday, and on Tuesday morning he leaves Bethany to go back to Jerusalem. We read here that when on the way on the road from Bethany, he became hungry. This is a very interesting irony that Mark presents to us. Pastor Samuel read for us a passage from Colossians that Jesus created everything. By the word of his power, he sustains everything. And at the same time, we read in the Mark that he fed thousands. On this day, he became hungry. Now, some of you 
perhaps struggling in Christian walk and not sure if you can even appeal to God with your infirmities, with your weaknesses. We find the God in human flesh who is not a stranger to our weaknesses. It is the one who experienced hunger. The author of Hebrews presents to us the one who experienced weakness. All except sin. It is God in human flesh. The one who can foretell the future, who can see the future, who knows the future, and at the same time, he is hungry. Jesus can sympathize with his children on this earth. And I would encourage you, as you share your prayer request through realm, that you would boldly approach the throne room of grace to seek help in time of need. Well, as Jesus becomes hungry, he sees at a distance a fig tree. Now, maybe some of us who live in the Pacific Northwest are not very familiar with fig trees. We probably know more about duck fir and cottonwood trees uh, and blackberries, even though it's not a tree. It's very well familiar to all of us. Uh, Jesus sees the fig tree at a distance. It's a very common tree in, uh, in Israel, in Palestine. In fact, as we read through the pages of the Old Testament, fig tree is one of the illustrations of God's blessings when God would describe the promised land. It is a land that flows with milk and honey. Not because the land is saturated with bees, but because the land is saturated with fig trees. And figs would be super sweet. They would be like honey. So Jesus looks at this tree and he approaches this tree, seeing at the distance. And notice with me that this tree, the fig tree, was in leaf. So he went to see if perhaps he would find anything in it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Beloved, when you approach the tree from the distance, what are you looking for? How do you determine whether should you even... Spend next five, ten steps to look for something in the tree. You probably will look first for leaves. Do you see any leaves? Check. Must be reasonably healthy tree. It has the appearance of being healthy tree, fruitful tree. And then you come, approach the tree, and you're looking for a fruit. Well, Jesus came to this fig tree, but he discovered nothing. He discovered no fruit whatsoever. This tree that gave the appearance, the the hope, and when Jesus comes to this tree, it was hopeless. Only leaves. After closer examination, Jesus finds not even a small fig on the entire tree. Only leaves. Some of you probably have a question, but wait a minute. Mark tells us here at the end of verse 13 that it was not a season for figs. True, and Mark is exactly correct. And your question is good. Isn't that the reason why there were no fruit on this tree? Well, not exactly. The figs, even though they would be harvested in mid-August to mid-October... Uh, they actually would have formed the fruit 
early in March through April. One of the Jewish writers, Alfred Edersheim, he was a Jewish believer. He wrote in about the 18th century. He gives a lot of insight to the life of Christ, to the ministry of Christ. And so if you have some of the access to the older books or digital version books, you can pick up some of his volumes. Well, he writes and says, it is a well-known fact in Palestine. The fruit appears before the leaves on the fig trees. So to, to see the tree that is covered with leaves, everyone would assume it is full of fruit. This is a very well-known fact. In fact, during the winter, the branches would remain undeveloped. However, in the springtime, the tree would produce the small fruit that eventually would grow bigger and would be harvested. And some people would bake cakes, dry them, and enjoy them. Adersheim adds that the Jewish writers would state that even unripe fruit was used for people who would travel across the field. And if in the, in the middle of the day they forgot their lunch at home, there was no McDonald's to stop by, so they would approach the fig tree. That was a very common process or common experience for them. So anyone who would see a fig tree... It's the same thing they would see a sign, uh, the rainbow sign or M, big yellow M sign from McDonald's. They would know this is the place for food. You can always find something to eat there. So Jesus comes to this fig tree, but he found no fruit of any kind, only leaves. A tree that appears very healthy, but gives a false hope. So in verse 14, Mark tells us that Jesus said to this tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Finding a fruitless, barren tree that have all appearance of fruitfulness, Jesus cursed the tree in the hearing of the disciples. Why? As you read through the Gospel of Mark, you will learn very quickly that Mark uses one of his literary devices, really very skillful devices, which is called sandwich. And I recognize that I speak a lot about food this morning. Um, the sandwich is not simply something that uh, you would eat, but it's a literary device where he begins with the story and concludes the story, in this case with a fig tree. However, the middle portion of the story is truly the heart of the message and the whole point and the purpose of the message. For example, in Mark 5, when we read the healing or how Jesus resurrected Jairus' daughter, as he begins the story, Jairus approaching Jesus and asking him to come and see his family so he may heal his daughter, Mark uh, inserts a different story of a woman who was bleeding for a very long time. And then he picks up back with Jairus and his daughter. Here he does exactly the same thing. We will come a little bit later, but in verses 20 and 21, he draws the attention of the readers back to the fig tree. So what does this fig tree illustrate? Well, this fig tree is really the illustration of the temple and the whole religious appeal of the nation of Israel. Jesus says that any... I would see a very 
strong religion that could guarantee for any person the eternity in heaven. However, upon closer examination, that religion was barren. It was fruitless. So, first, Jesus illustrates for his disciples and for us the fruitless religion with a fruitless tree. Next, in verses 15 through 19, Jesus confronts fruitless religion. Let us pick up in verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. Please notice here that Jesus, as he comes to Jerusalem, he stops specifically in the temple or at the temple. If you would look at the map of Jerusalem, um, you would see that there were other important buildings and other important structures in Jerusalem. For example, uh, that's uh, Jerusalem had Anthonian Fortress, Herod's Palace. But Jesus does not go to the political square of the day. He goes to the religious heart of the day. His focus for that week would be the temple. Jesus has the business with worship. Now, beloved, Jesus will come again and he will deal with the political structure of our society and our world in his second coming. But in his first coming, he came to instruct and to establish the proper worship of God. This is truly the beginning. This is truly where any transformation must happen. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And unless we recognize that our first and primary calling in life is to worship God, beloved, we will be useless to the society. I know society often accuses us and says that uh, we are thinking too much of heaven, so we are earthly not good. Steve Lawson once said that unless you are heavenly minded, you are earthly not good. There is no way for us to influence the society unless we have our hearts worshiping Christ. So Jesus comes to the place of worship. He's focused here in the temple. His business is worship. Not the Rome, not the politics of his day. So why do people selling animals in the temple? Why such a big enterprise? It feels like a, a, a stock market, a big trading mechanism, a flea market or bazaar, any places you've been. We read here that these events are taking place during the Passover. Now, if you know anything about the Passover, it's not simply a celebration of some historical distant events when people of Israel left Egypt. Uh, they saw ten plagues, and some of you just learned recently in Sunday school. Um, this is the 4th of July for Israel. This is the National Independence Day. The Passover is a celebration of national birth. It is a big deal when nation and Jews from all over the world will come to Jerusalem. Josephus writes that in uh, 60th AD, in, in temple in Jerusalem, they would slaughter over 255,000 lambs 
And if you would do the math, I know it is difficult on Sunday morning, but if you do the math, about four people per lamb, because they would, require, they would be required to eat the lamb, you have easy two and a half million people coming to Jerusalem. And beloved, these are not normal residents in the city. They come from all over the world once a year to celebrate God's redemption, to celebrate national identity, to pray for deliverance from Roman oppression. That's why they come for Passover. Now we also learn that people who were in charge of sacrificial systems, uh, sacrificial system at the time, they were priests and Sadducees. These two specific groups of people, they would run the whole operation in the temple. And when people would come into the temple from the eastern gate, they would come, first of all, into the court of Gentiles. It was a very large territory, probably uh, four football fields, if you can imagine. Um, It was a huge territory. And people would have to buy a sacrifice and then go through the court of women, through the court of the Jews or men, circumcised men. And then they would come into the court of priests. And priests will look at your sacrifice and say, Bueno, no bueno. Good, no good. And if you bring your lamb hundreds of miles away, your lamb probably would not look very happy. They will not approve of your sacrifice. They will require you to go and purchase a lamb. In fact, when you're going to buy a lamb on the market, you will pay about 10,000, not 10,000, you will pay 10 times more for the price of the lamb. But what to do if you're poor? Well, they have a solution for you. For a value of the quarter, you will buy $4 worth a dove, a pigeon. Beloved, temple was not an operation for a religion. It was a, a big money-making machine. People who would buy or would be selling animals or doves or exchanging the currency, they would pay a very hefty price to rent the slot in the court of Gentiles. And then they would have to split the profit with high priests and Sadducees. Now, if we are step, stepping back for, for, for a little bit, um, whenever we read in the New Testament, the priests and high priests, the entire office was not, um, would not come from the line of Aaron, like we read in the Old Testament. Uh, the high priest's office was purchased from Rome. In order to pay back that debt, they had to collect on religious aspirations of the people. So Jesus comes to the temple and he finds a massive crowd. Everybody preoccupied with buying and selling, trading their coins. They did not have bitcoins at the time uh, or dollars. They would bring because they were not allowed to uh, offer or pay the temple tax with a Roman coin, with a Roman image or image of the Caesar. They had to convert into a shekel. And obviously they would pay about 25% on the conversion rate. So Jesus comes and finds all of this in the temple, in the place that should promote worship, should promote God-honoring and meditation. He sees the bazaar. 
If you remember, when Jesus began his ministry, he came actually to the temple and he cleansed it once. John 2 tells us that he made a whip and would throw things, throw the tables of money changers. All the animals would be scattered. Now, three years later, guess what? Temple is back to its normal operation. It is the place that has the appearance of true religion. But when Jesus comes there, he finds a faithless temple, a faithless religion. So he cleanses the temple again. We read in verses 15 and 16 that he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Apparently, Jesus would stand by the gate that would lead into the court of Gentiles. And he would not permit on that day for anyone to carry the merchandise. Once for all, he, he creates the stage where he would actually teach people in the temple. Jesus by cleaning the temple, condemns the fruitless religion that he finds in the heart of Judaism. Now, some of you may wonder, how can one person would stop such a massive operation? If it would be me or you, it probably would be very challenging, but not with Jesus. Uh, if unclean spirits obeyed him, if the big waves obeyed him, uh, his word carried far superior power and authority than we could ever imagine. How many of you were driving on the freeway and you f- would suddenly stop in the traffic? Probably most of you. And you would learn later on that one police car would block the entire I-5 that is heading to Seattle. How can they do? Well, they have authority to do that. Me and you, we don't. We read about occasional tsunamis. They would cover the entire islands and destroy the communities. It's a one movement underneath the ocean that creates a massive wave. There is a one powerful person, God-man, who cleansed the temple and stops the operation there. Well, obviously, the attention and the the whole disturbance in the temple uh, got the attention of the authorities. So Jesus begins to teach those who would come and listen. Other gospel uh, writers tell us that Many people, many poor people would come and he would heal many on that day. Children would come and recognize him and they will, will say, uh, save us, O Lord. So Jesus teaches them and says in verse 17, Is it not written, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations? He reminds the, everyone who came and listens to him, says, this temple was purposed by God to be a place of worship for all the nations. 
In fact, when God chose Israel, He chose them to be a channel. When God's promise through Abraham would go to all the nations. The message of salvation was never designed to be only for Israel. It always would be with the focus to all the nations. In fact, Jesus quotes here Isaiah 56. And in Isaiah 56, we read various groups of people, eunuchs, Gentiles, who would not be normally permitted to come into the temple. But now Jesus tells them God's intent and God's purpose for this temple is to bring people from all the nations that they would come to a house of prayer. This is my house, and it shall be house of prayer for all the nations. Salvation and access to God, a place where people could find forgiveness for their sins, they could find restoration of their relationship with God, should be temple. But it was not. He had the appearance of all religiosity and the busyness. But it was absent of true meaning and purpose. Jesus tells them that temple is the place where the children of God, people of God, would come to meditate, to reflect on God's purpose, God's character and God's nature, God's name. They would find restoration for their souls. They would contemplate to receive God's instructions. That was the sole purpose for the temple. And it was for all the nations, not just for the Israel. In fact, when Solomon built the temple, in the dedication we read his prayer that even when strangers or foreigners or Gentiles would come and they would be seeking your name, do not turn away. But Jesus condemns the whole enterprise in the temple and says, you have made it a den of robbers. Before God destroyed the first temple built by Solomon, God spoke exactly these words through Jeremiah. The priests, the religious leaders who created or who uh, changed the whole purpose of the temple, that was the uh, temple the place where they would take advantage of those who seek restoration relationship with God. It would be a club of thieves, a den of robbers. It would be a hiding cave. It is interesting that thieves will never commit crime or don't commit crime normally in their hideouts, in the caves. They go out. They go on the Jericho Road to commit crime and then they bring whatever spoils and they share them. It is very interesting that Jesus uses this terminology against the religious leaders who were feasting on the people, thousands and millions of people who had come to the temple. He condemns their fruitless religion. It is the religion that had the appearance of healthy, vibrant life, but it was fruitless. You remember in Luke 13, Jesus gave a parable about a fig tree that was growing in somebody's garden and and the master came to look for a fruit and he found none. That tree was there for three years. He found none. He said to the servant, chop it off. It needs to go. And servant asked for one more year. Well, 
About three years later, Jesus comes second time to the temple to look for fruit. He again finds none. The Judaism and the temple, they were spiritually bankrupt and cursed by God. In verse 18, we read the chief priests and scribes, they heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. They were not seeking repentance. They were not seeking restoration of their relationship with God. They were seeking how to destroy the Son of God because they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples, they would go out of the city. So you would ask, well, we read about the fruitless religion in this fruitless tree. We we examined the fruitless religion and faithless temple. Is there any hope? Is there a reason why Mark includes this passage here for us? And the answer is yes. Keep reading. Verses 20 and 22, we find our last and final point. Jesus saves from fruitless religion. He speaks about saving faith. As they were passing by in the morning, that is a Wednesday morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. The miracle. This is one of the two destructive miracles that Jesus performed. A fruitless and dead. It was a dead tree from its root. Notice Jesus was not applying more fertilizers. He is not uh, rejuvenating this tree. He is not uh, rehabilitating this tree. He pronounced curse. It served its time. It's barren. It's fruitless. It's gone. This is what happens to any fruitless religion. God gives his grace. God gives his time. He's patient, but not forever. Now, there are some in the Christian circles who would say that God needs a million of years to do some natural things in the world. I want you to see in this example. How long did it require for Jesus to deal with this tree? Thank you. Just a day. Now, did Jesus apply any chemicals to the roots? No. He said, may no one ever find fruit from you again. And she died instantaneously. I submit to you that I do not have this power. I know some of you who have gardens you wish to say to those weeds and blackberries, be gone. <laughs> They're still there. It reminds us the power of Christ. He has the power to condemn. He has the power to bring to life. So when disciples were amazed at this power of miracle, seeing this tree withered, they said, Rabbi, look, it's amazing, mind-boggling. They've never seen this in their life. Well, Jesus answers to them and says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. You may 
think that having trust and confidence and faith in the temple would bring you any closer to God? No. Have faith in God. We see here that apparently Israel and Judaism had everything going for them. They had the law of God through Moses. They had they added hundreds of rules and regulations to their religious system. They were a very busy religious operation in the temple. They prided themselves in the fact that they were children of Abraham. And just by the fact that they were ethnically Israelites, they would automatically will be seated with Abraham in afterlife. They strictly observed the Sabbath, feasts and prayers. They were chosen nation. And when Jesus came to assess their standing with God, you know what he found? He found them to be fruitless, faithless, and cursed. What did they miss? What did they miss in all the business of their religious life? They missed Christ. When Christ was born, Jerusalem was very busy. They missed his birth. When Christ came on his final week to Jerusalem, they missed Christ. They rejected him. Those blind and outcasts, they recognized him. But the religious leaders and the entire Judaism, they missed Christ. Beloved, any religion that is void of Christ is empty, fruitless, and condemned. So what is there for us, for the church? And this is where we're going to close. We have to be very careful. Because church could be very easily prone to seek a very external, busy religious life. If you read the letter to Galatians or Hebrews, you'll find that. So Paul deals with this issue in Galatians, and he gives an instruction for all of us. How shall we live? Saying, have faith in in God. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Beloved, we are not here to promote self, to pursue external religion. We are here to honor Christ, who is all-sufficient Savior. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for this story from the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus deals with the heart of the matter. He deals with the religion of people. And I pray, Lord, that none of us would walk away simply relying and trusting any of our own efforts, priding ourselves that we we grew up in a Christian home, but we all together with Paul would confess and say that I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the days that I live now, I live them by faith in the Son of God who died for me 
and who redeemed me. May you be exalted in our lives as we trust you. Amen.